Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Recorded live. I'm Mara Chawastik. And I'm Wayne Gladstone. And this... And this- Sticks and stones. Where words will never hurt you. <laughs> yeah. It up. And Wayne said, you know what, we didn't practice. And I said, no, we did it before. It's no problem. But he was absolutely right. We should have practiced. And it's all my fault. I fucked everything up. We're all ruined for the entire night. But thank you, everyone, for joining us despite our, our my horrible fuck-ups. Um, luckily, you won't have to hear as much of me because we have a wonderful guest tonight. Our guest is Frank Lesser. Frank is the author of the book Sad Monsters, which if you do not own, you should immediately just go by and we will remind you at the end of the show so you don't have to run away. We'll tell you again. Um, He's the author of Sad Monsters and he is formerly a writer for the Colbert Report. Frank, hi. Thanks for joining us. And this is Sticks and Stones. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was really late. I really messed that one up. Yeah, Uh, it's actually all your fault. I know. I just wanted to take the blame off of Mara for just a second. Uh, hey, very good to uh, to be here chatting with you guys on this computer phone based future thing. You're you're doing a great job. You're everybody sounds clear and good. And other than me screwing everything up, which I hope to do throughout <laughs> the show, I'm gonna like that. We were talking before we even started about having a recurring theme through all the shows, and I think me screwing them up would actually be a pretty good one. That's, I think that would be good, but then, but then also just like about an hour and a half straight of apologies and sort of self-recriminations would be key to that, I think. Like, it's a, it's a minor mistake that I don't think anybody listening really noticed, but <laughs> I'm doing the, the let's just, I mean, this is a good topic. We should just discuss this, a very self-aware, self-referential we should all discuss times that we've screwed up the most, and that can be the whole show. Just going back through past failures and uh, and getting just <laughs> continually sad and and very angry at ourselves for them. I think that would. Or you, you should just pick apart like last week's podcast and just go through like <laughs> just at the beginning. Be like, I just have we just have a few things that well, we wish we'd done differently. Because regret is a key thing for I think most comedy people. In one way or the other. Most people. I don't know why I meant that, just comedy people. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, do you think we picked apart last week's podcast enough, or do you think we need to go back over that one? <sighs> <laughs> Welcome that to the is- show, Frank. Uh, <laughs> we had a minor snafu, but I think we <laughs> dwelled on it long enough. Um, we, we, Mara put together a very lovely, vaguely chronological order uh, interview, but uh, I want to just jump to one thing off the bat. Um, I was tweeting out a lot of sexy tuxedoed pictures of you where I referred to you as uh, the Jewish James Bond. Wh- what are those photos? Were those like a photo shoot to promote your book? <laughs> They were taken before uh, my book, Sad Monsters, published by Flume, I think. I don't even know. I was trying to do a, like a subtle little push for it just there, but then I forgot who the publisher was because it came out in 2011. My friend uh, Eva Bernstein uh, took the photos, and, you know, I was just like, oh, I'll wear like a black suit. It's not really a tuxedo, and she was sort of like, oh, let's, let's pose it. And she's a really good photographer. Uh, yes. I think she had a different vision. I mean, it worked perfectly. I really wanted that. I brought the smolder. I do want to just you take credit for that. You definitely brought the smolder. I enjoyed I also felt weird because I was like, that's a nice photo. That's, that's maybe not, like, it's not the most accurate. It's a very, it's a nice, I enjoyed the photo. Thank you for, <laughs> for tweeting that. It works very well for you. Numerous women have, have expressed to me, either publicly or in private, that it, you know, <laughs> it does something for them. Right. Well, my girlfriend has numerous times mentioned that she was not thrilled with some of the public mentions of that on Facebook. 
What? Oh, no. other people? Not the, not the photo. Just she was like, who's this, who's this girl? Oh. Like, right? And I was like, ah, uh. ah, ah. I, I don't think really she should relax in the sense that I don't think anyone gushed on about you more than I did. So I think. <laughs> no, I know. I, I don't think that little... that means she should relax, though. That she should be very, very nervous about that. <laughs> I feel like the the guests are chosen based on uh, attractiveness. Basically, all right. I just was looking through with Nick's thing. There was also like a here's an attractive man. I was like, it's nice. It's nice. Um, We're trying to put together kind of a Chippendale show, but just like <laughs> on the air. We're just hoping to have sort of attractive men that we can put post pictures of every week, and then eventually, you know, we'll drop the, the podcast and... is your con to get us all to later agree to uh, a sort Calendar. of Chippendale routine. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we're going to have a lot of Colbert-related questions, but since you brought up Sad Monsters, oh, yeah. why don't you just tell everyone? Uh, I read the book. It's a great book. It's sort of... Uh, uh, if you took every kind of archetypal monster and kind of wrote little short stories and passages that kind of examined what their neuroses must be, if that were their existence, um, how did you get the idea to do that? I think just a sort of disturbed childhood or something. When I when I was very little, I really liked Godzilla movies. I liked all of the horror films. More like the Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff which is not actually a good movie, although I haven't seen it that recently. I just always liked the weird, macabre sorts of things, and I was at Colbert. I'd been on the show probably about three or four years at that point. Finally figured out how to have some uh, spare time to do my own thing. I was making little short films along the way and decided, let me get back and write some written humor pieces, which is something I did in college, was editor of the humor magazine in college, and still was always trying to do before I got on Colbert. Nobody. Weirdly enough, nobody wanted to run it until I got on Colbert, and then they could say, like, written by Frank Lesser, writer for the Colbert Report, definitely helped. Um, uh, so, it, it, you know, it, it's a, there are only darn a ton of places that even run written humor. But in any case, I started writing a few pieces, and for whatever reason, the first three pieces were all monster-themed. Um, the, the, the first one, and, and I think the, the two of them ran on Slate, um, and one of them was uh, like a relationship, a parody of like a relationship comment, uh, column about how to date a genie. It was something like how to rub them the right way. It was like a Cosmo thing about how to keep your genie satisfied or something. And trust me, it's a lot funnier than that description just made it sound. Uh, and then I wrote another one about an abominable snowman, and realized, oh, wait, maybe I could put together a uh, collection of humor pieces about this. And I thought that Monsters That Are Sad are kind of a funny idea because it's, it's you know, generally more mean if you're making fun of sad humans, but monsters don't exist, and it's not like they're all just representations of humans. So I felt I felt fairly good about, you know, writing it. It, just was, it was just something that I was sort of enjoying. I'm not sure that I had, maybe I should have had a bigger motive for it, um, no, I don't, I don't think you need a. I mean, let me ask you just one technical question about it because a, part of the uh, the uh, part of the goal of of these shows that Mar and I are doing are to tell people about. Not that we're experts, but when I say the business, I mean there's a lot of people who have creative endeavors, but not a lot of people who then find a way to make money off that, or find a way to get published, or whatever the deal is, or act in a play or a film, or get a record cut. But um, when you got your book made, did you get a separate literary agent for that? Or was it your representation that you already secured from the Colbert gig that helped you put that together? <laughs> no interest. Uh, I, it was a separate literary agent. And, um, and it's, this is probably if you're not already in the sort of business, and I hate to use that term, but if you are transcribing this podcast, that should be capitalized. T-H-E, the, the, the T and the B should both be capitalized. I mean, the business. Um, but no, if you're, not in the, if you're not in this world, you don't necessarily know that you generally have an agent. You might also have a manager. I do have both because I'm interested in not just television, not necessarily just writing, but also maybe someday directing. That was eight years ago, nine years ago when I signed with them. Um, and then they... I don't I don't want to get too into specifics here, but if you have a TV agent, basically anytime I've run any idea past my TV agent, they are they're always like, oh that's great. Why don't you make that a TV show? It could be a screenplay idea, it could be an idea for a book. They're always like, oh right, uh, write up a pilot. 
So they're more focused on, and they're very good at what they're doing, but they're very focused on uh, doing what their job is, I guess. Right. It's a very good thing. Exactly. So I, exactly. I, I did, my manager sent, I sent him three pieces that were all monster themed. was like, hey, I think I could put a book together, you know, about this or something. And he sent it to a lit agent who, interestingly enough, about five years before that, before I was on Colbert, I had met with and had shown him three humor pieces, and I thought the meeting went well. He, I don't, you know, he read the pieces later, and then I got a uh, form rejection from his assistant two weeks later, just saying like, "Thanks, we're not interested." <laughs> but of course, having, you know, being on Colbert, I mean, also I think the the possible, the actual thing, the charitable or the possible reason is that I did improve definitely as a writer. I mean, I know I improved as a writer even after two years on the Colbert Report. So those pieces probably were better, but I think it, <laughs> the credit writer uh, on the Colbert Report was very, very helpful in getting that and getting him more interested in thinking that a publisher might get interested. Right, but you had to get the literary agent. You, to, yes. To, oh, right, so you that, that was really what I was getting at. Did you, did you have your TV agent introduce you? Did you do a search on your own? No, so, my, you ma- so my manager sent, it, sent the pieces to this lit agent in New York, and the manager ah. and, and TV agents are in L.A. So it's very, we're very right. much into the sort of sausage part of how the comedy sausage show is made, so I'm sure everybody listening is like, great, No, I think hilarious. that is interesting. No, I think, don't you think, I mean, people yeah. don't realize that, that the, all the reps for everything in TV and Hollywood, that's all West Coast, but books still are very New York. I mean, the lit agents are in New York. The publishers are in New York. It is two totally separate worlds, separated by a country, I guess, of people who are doing something besides books and television, whatever that is. But, right, did you know that when you were writing your humor magazine in college, that that was the world that you were? No, I had no idea about any of that. I just wanted to very quickly just want to say, some of the agencies do have some New York offices, some of the smaller boutique agencies are in New York. But, yeah, the, the, the main ones, the big, I guess there are only four now because a couple merged, but the four big ones are mainly headquartered in L.A. No, I didn't really know anything when I graduated, and I'm, I'm from that part of the main country that, that you, you know, the flyover country from Columbus, right. Ohio. I only mentioned to get some sort of uh, legitimacy so people think I'm like a real American. <laughs> It work were you afraid oh, yeah. that you were going to come off as a uh, you know big city elitist or something? You have to rely on the uh, Ohio cred. <laughs> it's often? that photo. I think it's that photo that you guys tweeted. <laughs> I look like right. a typical East Coast intellectual liberal. All code words. We know. We all know. I was say. Yeah, we all know what that's code for. Sure. By the way, I did Quick make first a drink. We Oh yeah. Wait. What? Wait, the quick question is, which one of us is sending a telegram via Western Union? There's yeah, like a beeping I've been going to on. That's that out too. maddening. Wait, what is I that? I think it's what? Frank. You, Frank, did you not Frank hear that? Like, oh, no, I'm not, hearing, I'm not hearing the beep. Yeah, it's definitely you. Right. I just taste oh, it inside the living room trying to figure out, like, oh, if I stand <laughs> here, if I stand there. I completely didn't listen to you for uh, several oh, minutes. Oh, no. So, I yeah. feel like everything – wait, are people commenting on the, on the chat? Thing? Well, I am. I so, I know, that's, Mara and I are, so that's – Yeah, we're, I'm gonna, we're, we're going to blame you. Let, let, let's just do a we're, – we're, we're 14 minutes into the podcast. Let's just do a quick recap. First, Mara destroyed the first three minutes by saying this, which was Please. detrimental to the entire show. Then you ruined the next, I'd say, eight to nine minutes with this kind of beeping, which we're just going to blame you for, even though I don't have any proof that it's any more you than anyone else. So if we could all just vote in the chat room, I think I, I win. I haven't destroyed the podcast yet except from the content of what I've been saying. <laughs> yeah, but weren't you supposed to? Wasn't that like? Didn't you promise? Oh, I will ruin the podcast tomorrow. I thought so. It was really um, more of a guideline than a than a rule. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. But like, I'd like okay. to say that I, I'm doing my part as the guest. I want to be polite and help ruin it as much as I can. Talking <laughs> about the celebrities of the comedy writing representation world. Frank, that was the most gentlemanly thing ever done for me, really. Like, I made a fool out of myself, and then you stepped in and tried to just make a bigger one. I, I, so I, I don't think distract. you made a fool of yourself. <laughs> you didn't make a fool of yourself. You said one extra word. Um, I was a joke. Obviously, I'm talking over the top. My God. I don't know if you do jokes, but there's, this, there's he, these things. Yeah. 
here's the deal. So so I had wanted to like the goal of these shows to like show people like a an, a normal pragmatic path to actually having careers in art. And last week we didn't do it because Nick had a crazy story where like he was counting radiators in a factory and he made his own printed magazine and sent it off to America and then Greg Gutfeld became his savior and suddenly he was an editor for Maxim Magazine. That's a crazy, not normal story. But Frank's story about how he got the huge break of Colbert is basically as equally as frustrating and infuriating for our listeners and not like anyone else's story, I'm sure, on the Colbert Report. No, they're well. They're all generally different and all equally frustrating, or frustrating in their own ways. I would say because anytime you hear the story, you're always like, "Oh, that's that's great," and impossible to replicate. It's not right. generally like it's all sort of getting lucky. And one thing that 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 is good about that, or in in some ways, or one one bit of solace that you can sort of take from it a little bit, is just that. There are tons of funny, hilarious people, which I think Twitter has proven, and just a lot of them or a lot of the people didn't necessarily get, like, the good break as early as some of the other people did. Like, there are certain people that right out of college, basically, or even in college. Uh, one of the writers, who's actually a really great, amazingly funny guy, met, you know, uh, a, a big-time Asian guy who was speaking to, like, the Harvard Lampoon, and he, this, this kid was on the Lampoon, and you know, chatted with him, and they hit it off, and, like, he ended up getting invited to submit a packet to Colbert, and that's, like, I mean, actually, maybe that's the best one, if you really want to do it. Right, right, yeah, that's what I mean, writer, that makes go sense. Go to Harvard and write for the Harvard Lampoon, and that will right. up your chances oh. about 500%, probably. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Don't know Brian's be, story makes also sense. Also, try to be Frank Rich's son. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Simon Rich is actually one of the funniest writers. The other thing that I would say that's also somewhat encouraging, though, is of all the people who got in the lucky break, almost every single person, at least at Colbert that I've met and in most of the other late-night comedy worlds, are incredibly talented people. So it's never really, or it's very rare, at least, I think, in this in that particular subset of the comedy writing field, it could be a little different. You you Since you have to generate jokes so often and, and under such sort of stressful circumstances, but the people who do get it are amazingly talented. Almost all of them did have some good lucky break, whether it was 20 years ago they were doing improv with Stephen Colbert in Chicago, and later when he got a show, he was like, hey, would you want to submit a packet, or they knew somebody else, or something else happened, or one other kid. God damn it, I, Frank. I feel uh, like you just encouraged a ton of people to do improv in Chicago, uh, and that was just not necessary. Well, Nobody needed to, to be given encouragement for that. And to go to Harvard, two things that you really shouldn't. <laughs> the most, the, the very useful but also most insufferable things you could do would be a, a, someone who went to Harvard and does improv. I'm kidding. It's a, it's a great school. Clearly, it's very good school. <laughs> it's okay. But I don't I think not, you could bring not, Harvard down on the show. I don't think I you could single-handedly ruin its reputation. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be very careful about what I say about anyone on this podcast. <laughs> I don't want to piss off anybody. I hear Harvard's I'm, an okay college. So, <laughs> keeping that in mind, I in no way want, like, dirt or behind the scenes. I just want, like, generalities. Um, what... I mean, Colbert, I'm sure, is its own specific niche, but, like, can you just even vaguely give people a sense of, like, what the what it's like to go to, quote-unquote, work when your work is coming up with 30 minutes of content for five shows a week? Like, what, what is that experience like? Is there structure to it? Do you know that, like, 9 a.m. you're going to have a meeting about headlines, and then at noon we talk about longer pieces and... Um, yeah, there, there was a definite structure, and there, there are different articles where people have gone into a little more detail, or at one point, Colbert allowed uh, a New York Times reporter to come in and kind of watch the process, and I think at a few other places, you know, cut points, reporters got, like, a really good access to see how everything worked. It was, there was a very um, set schedule, but a lot of it, especially actually because Stephen came from such a strong improv background, there was a good sense of looseness, and they always were up for hearing other ideas. The, the thing that this was maybe at some point in my first year there that I, I sort of realized that it was the most like anything in high school that I'd experienced since high school. That, that could be because in college wow. I was doing a lot of fiction writing classes and not really taking real classes and sleeping in really late. But we would have, because it's a daily show, we would have morning assignments that would be due at 
about anywhere from 12.30 to 1.30, depending on when they moved the deadline or if you were running a little bit late, essentially. And that would often be for the stuff we pitched in the morning. You'd pitch stuff to the head writers, then the head writer would sort of cull the joke herd, and you'd have to repitch some of the jokes that they liked to Stephen, which for me was something I didn't care for that much because I don't like repeating jokes necessarily. It's possibly part of the reason I don't do stand-up. You tell a joke upstairs in front of all the writers, it would kill. Everybody would love it. You'd be downstairs, and I, you'd, I, for me, I'd always be like, well, I'll just tweak it a little bit. Let me retell it. And you, you miss the beat. You don't say it right. All the writers have already heard it, so none of them are laughing. And Stephen doesn't uh, laugh. It's, the bit doesn't get on. And you're like, I killed upstairs. What's going on? And also, it's terrible because Stephen's the funniest guy I've ever met. I think any writer on the show would tell you that, partially because they want to keep their jobs, but also because it's absolutely <laughs> the truth. But it's very rough when he doesn't laugh at your joke because you're like, oh, the the funniest guy in the world didn't like that joke. That kind of stuff. <laughs> but it's also great. Would be- it's not some hack cutting your joke. It's it's like a really funny person who didn't like the joke. So you can't really be that frustrated where you're like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ooh, I don't think that would be. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was I was gonna. We can keep going, but I was gonna jump in and and play a game here. Is that all right? Or do you oh, wanna... just, I have a, a very quick question. I mean, Go for quick, it. If, if Frank answers it quickly, it'll be very quick. And then <laughs> I, just, I tweeted the pic the pic of you, the thing I loved, where you were uh, Stephen Colbert's stunt beard, where <laughs> yeah. uh, you had your you were quite Semitic at that point, and uh, Stephen wanted to have a, a a beard to stroke to make a dramatic point, but he was clean shaven, so you just leaned over his shoulder and he he stroked your face. How did that fit come out? So that um, that was pretty much just good luck being in the right place at the right time. Uh, the guest, I think, was John Sexton, who at the time was, I think, the president or head of NYU. Um, and my office mate, Mike Brum, and I were both doing guest questions for that. That's where we'd sit. You, you, one of the assignments. So the reason, again, just going back very quickly to why it was like high school, you'd have morning assignments, they'd be due, then you'd have afternoon assignments, and they sort of, I think, like to keep, you know, you like to have sort of like a little bit of an immature atmosphere in some ways. So it just, for whatever reason, was a lot more like high school than any other, not that I've had that many other jobs necessarily. Um, (laughs) But in any case, uh, Mike and I were doing guest questions uh, for that guest, and the way you do it, you'd each write about 10 joke questions, and then about, it would happen about once a week. Uh, this is probably okay. I think it's okay to go. They never really liked when we talked too much about the process, but the show is no longer on, and some of well, that's why I felt empowered. Yeah, exactly. Some of it could be transposed, I'm sure, to the new show, but but you know, not exactly in the same way. You you'd write some possible jokes, and then Stephen would sit there and and riff off of them, read through them, say he likes them, come up with other things, and those were sort of what was on the cards during the interview. There was an, I thought it was interesting. This is a tangent, a side tangent to my other tangent. But when Penn Teller was on the show, he was like, what's on these cards? And he grabbed Stephen's cards and tore them up and everything. And I remember, I think our, one of our showrunners or the head writer was like incensed that he would do it. But I kind of thought it was me. I was like, oh, he's Penn Teller. He likes to call people Penn on. Gillette? Not on both. Yes. <laughs> Wait. So I, you're not like some sort of human, human centipede hybrid who came onto the show. <laughs> this is because I've had this. Horrible drink that I invented based off of uh, Wayne calling me uh, uh, the, the the Jewish James Bond off of it. I'm going on a tangent to my tangent to my tangent. I swear. I'm By the way, this is this is I'll your brief back. response. Let's just go back and say I had a quick question about this. Is like beer. a four-hour show, right? The so, answer um, was, oh yeah, it's just something that Chuck came up with. Anyway. <laughs> Wait, no, so wait, very quickly, so James, Jewish James Bond, so I made some joke, we were like tweeting back and forth, Twitter's this thing, guys, where you can just joke around with friends, and anyway, oh my God, we're tweeting about this thing, and I made a joke about making a drink, uh, I, I was calling it the, the Jew Bond Martini, where it's vodka mixed with pickle juice, and it's um, brined, not vinegared, because true pickles should be brined. Anyway, this is the worst tangent ever, I'll get away from it. I'll tweet the recipe. But I, what, oh my, my point God. is I'm a little drunk, so it's adding to like the tangential uh, <laughs> nature of my normal human speech. It. So in any case, going back, though, so that was why, I forget why I brought that up, but that's why I'm a little drunk. But, so Mike Brum and I, we were office mates. We were doing the guest questions for this guy, John Sexton, 
and we're in the office, and I, I don't remember if Mike had written this in the question or just, you know, came up with it off the top of his head. I think he made some joke about a be- about John Sexton having a beard, and then I think in the room, basically, Mike was like, oh, and then you should, like, say, like, oh, do you ever stroke your beard and, and make, think it makes you look really great? Well, I don't even need a beard to do that. And then, like, you know, have Frank come out and, you know, stroke his beard. I think there was – actually, it could have been – it equally could have been Stephen who was suggesting that I come out. I don't remember exactly, but I was like, hey, I'm glad I've got a beard. That's great. And it was a lot of fun. The only tough part was, like, leaning for, like, the 20 or 30 seconds that he kept stroking it. Because, uh, you know, I got, like, a slightly bad hip. This is going back to the Jewish James Bond thing here. Of course, you'd have a bad hip. But anyway, the point is – You think – I think so that, that would probably impede his work. Universe- I think that would probably impede his work. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it would be perfect. It's, let's just write this up. Let's write up the Jewish does James Bond. Does the Jewish Bond. James Bond have a license to kill? Or uh, does he have... It would be a license to quell. Oh, that's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> I just wanted pretty to good. know that was not prepared. This is not like at midnight or whatever. We did not have that written out. <laughs> no. We came up with no. that. <laughs> that's pretty way, good. All right. Really Warm in the apartment, so... Look, you just and keep I'm on dr- beeping and drinking, and Mara's going to take <laughs> us to our first game. Okay. Okay, so we, we play games on our show. That's part of what we do here. And we have two games we like to play, so this is your first. This one is called Stick or Stone or Story. Now, my last name is Chawastik. Wayne's last name is Gladstone. So I'm going to tell you three stories. They're all related to one another. And you have to guess, once you've heard them all, which one is from my past, which one is from Wayne's past, and which one is from a completely unrelated person's past who is a celebrity. It is a real story. And um, if you can but guess I, I who that is on top of it. Oh, okay. Wait, I should try to guess who the celebrity is. You well, can. no, you got to guess. You got to pair But really all you, need to do is, all you need to do is match up which one's me and which one's Wayne and which one is neither of us. That's, okay. that's the key. Okay? Okay. Uh, all I right. So <laughs> these stories are all about jobs that, uh, that we all held uh, prior to being famous, being famous meaning being on this podcast, of course. Um, <laughs> they were all held in the late 90s. So those three jobs, one of us, taught sex education, including a hands-on demonstration of a pocket vagina to a group of sorority girls. <laughs> one of us worked for one day only at a condom store and was never asked back. And one of us worked very briefly as a set dresser on a softcore porn set. Now you have to guess which one is me, and which one is Wayne, and which one is someone else entirely? Um, I want theme music, and I want to then be like, now guess, stick, stone, or sorry. <laughs> 1940s. Yeah, you're, already doing the, you're already doing the telegraph beeping on your end, Frank, so well, that would exactly. work well. <laughs> it's rhythmic beeping. It's a metronome. I just like to keep pace with all my rambling stories. Uh, no, hum. Hum along. That, that would be perfect. <laughs> it's like, stone, sure make a song right no now. No melody. No problem. <laughs> James Bond theme song. Um, let me see. Okay. Uh, while I wish Wayne Gladstone had been the one who was teaching the sex ed to the sorority, I mean, maybe he did. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to guess, though, that was that was Mara, and the, the condom factory was Wayne. Maybe this is, like, the obvious guesses, but I could be wrong. And then the other one is some other story, set dresser on a softcore porn you got uh, it. You're done. You're done. Stop speaking. Oh, okay. You absolutely nailed every single one. You oh, got yes. it. Unless you want to, unless you want to take a final guess as to who was the set dresser on a softball uh, set. You've already Brad, won. That's like bonus points. Brad Dourif. Yeah. Brad Dourif. It was John Hamm. But oh. thank you. You absolutely. You still got 100 percent an ace ace or no credit. Back up. You nailed it. Like, <laughs> Like the Frank's guess for the porn guy was Brad Dereef of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, yeah. and he's the voice fame. of Chucky. He's also the voice of Chucky. <laughs> sure, naturally. Naturally. Why, Brad of course. Dereef? Why wouldn't he? 
Yeah, he's had an odd enough career. He's had enough weird roles. All right. Well, it was John Hamm, but you got it right. You get full credit. Um, oh, yeah. Background. Uh, so then we each tell you a little background. I, yeah. When I was 22, I worked in a condom store. The condom store was only in business for uh, two months. Um, <laughs> and uh, when the shift was over, they counted down my draw, and like 20 to $50 was missing, uh, allegedly. So either my math sucked or I stole, which I didn't, or the person who owned the store couldn't count. I'm going to go with option three because her store closed after only like six to eight weeks. <laughs> and that was it. I worked one day at the condom store. What was, it, what was it called? What was the condom store called? I think it was called Condemnation. But if that's a chain, then I'm <laughs> Wait, remembering really? it wrong. That's good. I yeah. Mean, well, after it was. It might have been okay, but that was like a candy store in Park Slope very briefly. Also only lasted a few months. <laughs> but every second you speak is a second that we're not hearing about Mara teaching pocket. No, I want to hear that. Variety no, girls. no, no. I thought we had like hours. I don't know. I have no perception of time. <laughs> Mara, please go. I, I worked for a uh, like a women's health clinic, and they taught me to do sex ed education uh, seminars, basically. And so I went to a lot of different groups, but one of which uh, was a sorority gr- girls, and I I spoke to them about, you know, sexual health and sexual education, and I got to answer wonderful questions like, can giving a blowjob make you pregnant, and what if it's just anal? And I, I was the same age as these girls. Was and this had a to sorority uh, for, like, this is a trade school sorority? <laughs> <laughs> it was a not. It was not. For professionals. But, <laughs> these 18-year-olds needed the... They needed some extra education, and I got to hand around a, uh, a pocket vagina and have everyone feel what it felt like for some reason. I wait, didn't say that. Didn't didn't they have their own vagina? Exactly. I know, right? But we were so talking compare, about like sex toys, just general sex different. toys. So it was like, yours, here's the dildo, here's the pocket vagina. I like it was my first just, time ever. I like that you were just trying to shame their vaginas, just being like, here's what an <laughs> ideal one should be like if yours is different in any way. It's Girl, wrong. everyone put your hand inside your own <laughs> vagina and now in the pocket <laughs> vagina. Let's compare, everyone. Let's talk about what you're experiencing now. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. It did not pay well. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? What? Yeah, no, no. It was not, I would it was think not it would be weird. I would have been very awkward at, like, the age of 18 if somebody handed me a uh, pocket vagina. I think that's why they do, like, the... In, in in freshman year in college, they did like this like the RAs did like a sex ed thing with a banana, you know, and they put the the condom on. I always thought if they really wanted to get you to not have sex, that they should use like a rotten banana, and they like, just put the condom on, and like the banana just like falls apart. I got that in like seventh grade health, but I guess that's the difference between New York and and the Midwest. I didn't I didn't get the banana lecture in, once I was in college. They assumed I. They were wrong, but they assumed I knew how to have sex. No, exactly. I think here they, they just figured, like, none of you kids have done it. They were probably about 80% right. The, the lesson I got on my first day of college was my RA saying, here, there are certain words which we will not tolerate, certain amounts of hate speech. So you know what I was thinking of. I was thinking of all the terrible names for gays or blacks or Jews. And the next thing out of her mouth was words like girl. I stopped being a girl when I was 12. And then you know what else was on that list? Nothing. That's it. That was the only <laughs> prescribed word she had. She was done. She was a one-party can- <laughs> candidate. So, yeah. So I would have taken the I kind of like she skipped all the other, the other terrible things. That's, I guess you I, know I not to say those things. None of that story is made up. That's it. She was going to give a list of hate speech the word was girl, and then she passed the, passed the mic to the other <laughs> We had in, um, in I don't know if this was middle school or ninth grade, two people, a man and a woman, uh, came to the our high school to, I don't know what it was, they were like trying to talk about, not really sexuality, I don't know if it was gender, but they split the, the, whole, the whole class or everybody in the auditorium into boys went into the gym and I think the girls stayed in the auditorium and that they were asking us separate things, you know, around. So, or maybe it was the other way. I think the boys, we were still in the auditorium. I'm sure that detail was completely non-essential to the story. But they, and they asked us, like, oh, what are some euphemisms for having sex? And they didn't want anything like, no, not, not using the F word or anything like that. And people were saying, like, humping and, like, 
some kid shouts, like, riding the baloney pony, and everybody's laughing, and they're encouraging it. And somebody did say stabbing guts, which was just, like, horrific. But anyway, <laughs> then at the end of it, like, you know, they're encouraging a bunch of middle schoolers and ninth graders to, like, come up with different words for sex. At the end, they bring the boys and girls together. And the whole point of it was, and they're like, so I just want you guys to know what the boys said was disgusting. <laughs> what you all were saying was horrible. The, the girls are saying, like, making love. And, you know, if I, and I don't know if that's what any of the girls were saying, but apparently the girls were not being as encouraged. There weren't as many smart asses shouting out really horrific things. And we got, like, lectures about how people were saying ridiculous things. I still have no idea I what the point like- was. That whole auditorium became like comedy writers. Like every single one, they were just like, "Oh, this is great! I can just like come up with ridiculous names for things." Oh, this is what I'm doing. This is how what I'm devoting my life to. Well, That's disappointingly, it. I don't think anyone was. I think they were just, you know, they were like street jokes that they'd heard before. I was too shy at that point. I mean, and I would never have shouted out in a crowded auditorium of other high schoolers a euphemism for sex. It was basically just a way to get kids beaten up after school, probably. Like, what are you, you little wimp? So, I don't... It was a very weird experience. That sounds weird. Do you guys have more detail of John Hamm's story? I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't care about John Hamm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of John Hamm in college, there was that whole story about him beating the crap out of a pledge with a hammer. Did you see that? Okay, that just brought it... Yeah. Right no, yeah. I did see... I saw something on it. I would have never believed that a really tall, good-looking guy in a fraternity would have been mean to somebody else. <laughs> that was so shocking to me when I learned that. I, I thought um, it wasn't a hammer. It was he did something that like you know. Oh didn't, no, didn't no, right. there was a hammer involved. That's <laughs> that's definitely part of the allegation. Um, all right, so now we went through. I'm, I'm looking through our what we sent you. We went through the typical big break thing. We went through the uh, clearly how you make. We like to talk about how you make money on art. You were you were writing for years on a successful show, so we've got that covered. So now. Um, I don't, this is not, the point of this is not to name names or like, I hate this guy, but in, in comedy, it doesn't have to be a person, they're like a thing, a thing going on in comedy or a kind of writing that not that you hate, but then at least if you don't want to say that, something that you try not to do personally in your work, something like as a touchstone, like I'm not going to write like that. Uh, that's a good, very good question. I mean, it is tough because you don't want to sit and, you know, I'll wait until I'm like truly super successful before. I yeah, no, I'm not looking, I'm not people. looking for you to, 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 to call someone out, but, Mm-mm. um, here. There like, may be a general trend that is happening, uh, in, in, TV and in comedy writing yeah. that perhaps well, you'd like to avoid or encourage not to happen. Well, one thing that I think is a little interesting, I remember uh, reading, I think, that Tina Fey was once talking about, you know, she and uh, Seth Meyers when they were doing Weekend Update uh, and when they were head writers at SNL, but specifically about Weekend Update, they really didn't like clapter. They didn't really like the jokes that provoked what they called clapter, which is where you say mm. something that is really going to hit the perspective of the audience, the political or social perspective of the audience, and get them to, they get really into it, but they're not really laughing, they're more just clapping, and it's a woo, and they're clapping along mm-hmm. and everything, and she hated that, and I kind of feel that in the last year, that's a little bit where comedy has sort of been trending, because there's right. such a, a, a desire to avoid saying anything that's going to offend anybody, and I mean, in some cases, yes, it's very legitimate, there can be offensive jokes, there are topics that are very difficult to joke about. I think they usually can still be joked about in, in the proper way, but I think too many people now are using comedy, or I think it's a little bit with the internet with the fact that everybody can weigh in, everybody can be a critic, everybody can be a comic, that everybody... Wait, 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 wait. For... Mar, did you just get attacked by a table or chair? Something just happened. Nothing happened. Shut up. Quiet. I have not ruined the show in any way further. I don't know. You totally about. just said, You're... didn't you? <laughs> You're hearing things, and uh, oh, you should probably God. have that that's, that's when you really know your co-host, when you, when you can tell just by over the sound of Frank Lesher's teletype <laughs> peeping, you can tell that she's injured herself in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, 
I'm sorry, because I, I, I interrupted you, but let me guide you back to, to, to what you were saying in that. No, no, it's okay. I was only saying something brilliant about the state well, of the Well, speaking of brilliant, let's ahead. talk about something that you and I have talked about before that is related directly to what you're saying, which is an article I'm trying to publish if any publication has the balls, which at late, late, last count, The Atlantic did not because they published a, an essay that is antithetical to everything I believe in comedy by Gary Trudeau. I will make the statement. You're not. You're not making the statement. I'll burn the bridge. Fuck you, seventy-year-old Gary Trudeau, who was big in comics in 1977. But there is a popular and totally false notion that good satire never punches down. And uh, you wrote for one of the most uh, important satirical shows of the uh, of the millennia, and. Uh, my understanding of satire, based on all satire I've read and every play that I've read and every article I've read on, on the concept of satire, is that it attacks human vice and folly. It follows the sin. It finds the rigid, un- inappropriate humor and, and attacks it. It doesn't ask what, what socioeconomic class or whether they're in the ruling class, the person that is engaging in that vice. Um, so... So, I mean, uh, I don't want to, I'm not trying to ask you anything about Colbert, but you've written for other places besides Colbert. Have you ever written a joke that you felt wasn't punching down, but that people were like, well, that's going to cause problems? People are going to give us. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think definitely. I mean, I think one issue with it, I mean, definitely at Colbert and just in other cases, there is, there's, I think it's a good principle, like, try to punch up. You don't really want to be punching down too much. I do think it's more an issue of ratio. I think you can punch down a bit. The issue is if you're always punching down, then you're kind of, that's almost like Fox News to a degree. Um, I, I, think the, I think the idea that there are people who do to whatever, you know, to do to bad things happening to them, they can do no wrong is kind of a fallacy in logic. That isn't a huge issue, but that maybe ties into a little bit of that, uh, what you're talking about. Uh, because people who are reacting to wrongs can be wrong as well. That doesn't, I right. don't know, like a kindergarten right. level exactly. way of, exactly. Uh, there are, like you should learn that in kindergarten, that somebody punches you so you don't go and like kick them to the ground and start beating the shit out of them. Like, you know, that, that can, you can go a little too far. It, it's a complicated thing because, you know, a lot of comedy is satirical. It is going after bigger targets. The thing that I was just saying before is I just do think there's a little too much of now where people, you say something and people are like, yeah, I really agree with that. And it wasn't even really that funny or necessarily right. performed or said or done that well, but everybody's like, oh, hurrah, hurrah, you said the right thing. I applaud you. Retweet, right. you know, like, let me share this on Upworthy. Right. I, I mean, you said the right thing. Yeah. Twitter, Upworthy, Twitter is, some of the people is, who is. started it. Oh, yeah, it's just, it's just, but it's become this weird echo chamber for the left, essentially. And I'm very liberal, and I think very, I'm to the left, maybe not very You see it on both sides, and, you know, what Wayne was just saying, that, that Twitter is huge on that, and, and that's, I think, where you, you really do see that it's both the right and the left. Everyone's kind of speaking to their own choir, and if you can make, the point that enough people are going to jump on to, you get to feel really good about yourself for, you know, five minutes while everyone kind of just sits there and applause. And I love that clapter. That's great. I mean, <laughs> yesterday I had one of my biggest tweets ever, and I like the tweet, but part of the reason it was big was because a third of the people who retweeted it thought I was striking a blow against sexism, and I was just calling <laughs> CNN in, incompetent. CNN ran a picture of Billy Joel next to his wife, and the caption was his new wife, who's who's 33 and he's 60, whatever, and it said, is Billy Joel too old for this? And I was like, did you mean to call her his wife or Ms. Roderick or anything besides this? Meaning you wrote <laughs> such a bad headline that it sounds like you're referring to this woman as a this. That's just because yeah, CNN yeah. sucked, and it was a, it was a sloppy headline. But, like, people were just like, stop this objectification of women. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, like people who did not are... know Wayne really just thought this guy was... I know, it's just, just crazy knowing Wayne because we know he hates women. So hey, no, we're not. He knows misogyny. I mean, the, the whole point is that they're so incompetent they weren't even aware of the sexist implications 
of their work. Mm-hmm. But it was it was the joke was calling them incompetent. Uh, I don't really think CNN thinks women are you know to be referred to as this. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean I think a part of it, and I mean that's different. Like that's the anno- well, the, it's annoying in, in, in on two levels. I think because the one level is uh, where I think jokes that aren't quite as good or things that aren't quite are getting praised because they're like, this is good for society. And you're like, but it's not necessarily good art. It's not necessarily the greatest writing or anything. The, the more troubling one, I think, is where everybody, and sort of like that book that that guy who wrote the Man Who Stared Goat book or whatever wrote about, like, the internet <clears throat> shaming, like, so you've been publicly shamed sort of thing, where everybody on the internet likes to run off at whoever said the wrong thing today. And to a small degree, and I don't think... I'm not blaming either show for this or anything, but I think it's the audience is misinterpreting to a degree what the Daily Show and what the Colbert Report and what some of these other news right. shows are doing, where you're going after big public figures who are actually promoting legislation or, or who have big platforms on television, and they're saying terrible things. And I think people are now like, oh, well, I'm going to give the Jon Stewart treatment to some right. woman with 25 followers who tweeted the wrong thing, not realizing what she was doing, and it, you know, just right. opening eyes. And you're like, well, that's very different. They're not public figures. I don't think they were really thinking through what they said. And there's no way to really like it's it's all a cardinal sin. There's nothing. There's no, there are no gradations of wrongness. Essentially, I don't know. I I like. Well, I mean, that. people I think don't really know what satire even is. I mean, on Colbert, where you wrote. Just about everything was satirical, even if it wasn't um, by definition, because it was at least satirical in tone, because everything was the inverse of what Stephen Colbert was really saying, because he was in a character. On The Daily Show, and not, not to, I mean, this is not a, a criticism, Daily Show is great, and Jon Stewart is maybe my, well, all-time hero, but um, sometimes he's just making fun of something. Making fun of something isn't necessarily satirical, but I think to the world today, that's what satire is. Saying something sucks by itself well, is just satire, I, I so you don't want to... Yeah? Oh, no, I mean, I think it's okay to do that if the person's a real jerk. Like, I think it's so, fine no, so, so do I, but I'm just strong. saying it's a funny joke making fun of someone who deserves it, but it's not necessarily satire. Satire right. is not just tooling on someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think people think that's what it is, just mocking they think it's synonymous with mocking, and that's why they think you can't mock, you know, someone who's not empowered. But if you're doing more than mocking, there's a chance you can. But before we got the time running down, and we've got two games per show, we did Stick Stone Story, which you won. Uh, I guess last <laughs> week lost, so you were the first person oh, wow. in the history of the show to win Stick yes. Stone Story. If you get this right, you will be the first person to win this game, which is called Highbrow Lowbrow. Personally, I love mixing highbrow and lowbrow in my work, and I enjoy things that are both. Um, This game is both. You have to get three questions right. I've prepared two highbrow questions and two lowbrow questions. Each gets progressively harder. You can choose which category, but necessarily, since you have to get three, you have to do at least two from one and one from the other. So, today's theme, based around... Uh, you is a comedy writer theme, four questions based around the comedy writer theme. Let's play highbrow, lowbrow. Pick away. Okay. Wait, what do I pick? You have to pick the category, highbrow or lowbrow. Oh, oh, wait, but I thought I thought I got, I thought you asked two highbrow and two lowbrow questions. I do, but you only have to get three right. So you can... <laughs> And they each get the first question is easier than the second question in each category. Oh, okay. Oh, but I just pick which ones go first. Right. 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 Okay, but if you get the go. first three right, you will avoid the hardest oh, question in the category you don't want. <laughs> okay. Hmm. I don't know. I, I enjoy both brows. Uh, <laughs> quite middle brow, guys. Right? That's actually a thing. Uh, That's all the time we have, Let's start with high Let's start with high brow. Yeah. Let's start with high brow. Okay. This is the easier of the two highbrow questions. This staff writer for the 1983 season of SNL went on to co-create one of the most popular sitcoms of the 90s. Oh, Larry David. Correct. Well now, done. The thing is, you don't have to say 
you don't have to stick in the highbrow category now. You could jump to lowbrow. You don't have to do two Ooh. in a row. So highbrow, you can have a question in highbrow that's harder, or you could jump to lowbrow. Well, don't, don't I, I mean, if I get, like, I can, oh, I guess, like, I could get two wrong, and then I don't even get the fourth one. Uh-huh. Right. Hmm. I no, should have done a shoebox diagram and sent this to you. Let, let, <laughs> let me stick with the next highbrow. I'll go with the next highbrow. Okay. Oh, by the way, so, so, so these two highbrow questions were both based on um, famous oh, comedy shows with ensemble, with a large and, and, and a talented staff. So the first one was Nels. Wayne, I want to go to the I want to go to the lowbrow easy one. Change my mind. Yeah, that made more sense. Okay. Yeah, I just I just Which, thought it through game yeah. theory wise. Okay. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I don't like you anymore. All right. Which grossed, which grossed more at the box office, Blazing Saddles or something about Mary? What? Tough. I don't. I mean, are you adjusting for uh, inflation? Are these figures adjusted for inflation? I'm going to contest this if I'm, I get it wrong. Yes, ah. yes, yes. They're adjusted. Ah. Hmm. I'm going to say there's something not about Mary. One of the others. There's, there's something about Mary. Yes. Correct. I think you're very good at games. I you know are just like, nailing all of these. Well, I think I, that was like, I think the Farrelly brothers, I think their biggest hit, I think even bigger than Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, it, it is yeah. their be- biggest hit and by far their best movie, in my opinion. Okay. Oh, it's great, you yeah. Can, you can have either the harder highbrow question or the harder lowbrow question for the win. Although now, since you're styling, if you get it wrong, you still get the other question by default. Exactly. So uh, I'm going to go for the harder highbrow. Okay, the theme is, in highbrow, uh, since you wrote for the Colbert Report for many, many years, almost the entire length of the show, like 80% of its run, right? I said, yeah, I started about two and a half months in and left about a year before it ended. I was there yeah, almost right. eight years, the show was nine years. Right. Okay. It's more like so, 83%. No, I'm kidding. I have no idea. So, so, so we did SNL, which is a big ensemble comedy writer show. Next, we're going to go to your show of shows, which is uh, before you're on my time. Mara was around for that. This writer for your show of shows went on to great success as a playwright whose lesser-known works include Come Below Your Horn. Neil Simon. (laughs) I mean, I thought you were going to pull another Mel Brooks here. Now, wait, wait, wait. wait, Let me ask you this. I, I made the question easier, but what if I just asked you, what if the question was, this writer for the show of shows left to write a pl- write a play with his brother, name that play? Would have you known what it was? <laughs> no, I don't think I would have gotten that. That's but it. I think Neil I Simon's first one. play. Neil Simon's first play was Come Blow Your Horn, which he wrote with his brother Danny Simon, who was also a writer for your show of shows. Right, and I, I was going to, Danny Simon, I think, was like an early writing partner of Woody Allen, I believe. At some point. I don't know about that, but, he, but Woody Allen did also write for your show of shows, as did Larry Gelbart, who went on to develop MASH and wrote the screenplay to Tootsie. Ah, okay. I didn't know the Larry Gelbart. Ah, well, I think there was somebody what? else there who was huge, too. Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, Larry Gelbart... Uh, and somebody else, but I can't remember. Well, you don't even need to get to the uh, to the lowbrow what challenge. Been, um, what's, it, what's his name? The director, the creator of the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, Carl Reiner was an actor on the show, yeah. Yeah. Carl Reiner, <laughs> Sid Caesar, and Imogene Coca were the Never were actually the, the seen main. the show. I've only seen documentaries about the show. I know. I've only seen a few episodes, a few skits myself. Uh, but by all accounts, Sid Caesar was like the most insanely talented guy in the world. But to me, he's mm-hmm. just like... I just think of old Sid Caesar, like, doing, like, from, sticky vaudeville stuff. Like, yeah. On, like, or you know, he the, or something. Did he play the coach in, on, on, in Greece? He did. He did. Yeah. I don't think that was his, his finest hour, but, yes, <laughs> he did. That's what he they did. showed. That's like, his, uh, you know, right now he's in heaven. Story. He's in heaven. He's like, I was the biggest television star for all of the 50s. And you just say, yeah, didn't he uh, do a commercial for shoe polish? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he, uh, wasn't he forced to be the secret square on Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be Keith. You were like the uh, secret, is there a secret square? I don't know. Well, it used to be Paul Lind. But, uh, and then he died. And then the show oh, went off no. the air. That was Alf in the reboot. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we, this is good. 
All right, now we're, we're closing up the we, in the final minutes. This is a new segment which we haven't done, which we didn't do last week. Uh, okay. Mara came up with this segment. It's called uh, "What Did We Learn Today?" Uh, it's not called that, but it's that's the theme of it. We each mm-hmm. have to say something we learned in the course of the podcast. Uh, I'll go first. Um, I learned that if you ask Frank Lesser a very pointed, specific question and ask him to keep it short before Mara gets to her game, and it's beard-related, that will then instantly bring forth the most rambling answer of a podcast, delving into both how to make a pickle juice martini <laughs> and the state of Twitter. Mara, what do you do? I learned that when Wayne tells me someone who writes for the Colbert Report is going to know show shows and will know comedy writing, and I say, I, I don't know that everybody, who would know that? I don't think he needs to know that. I am 100% wrong and should never, ever doubt that again. Frank, what did you learn? And by the way, you have four minutes, so you can... Oh, God. No, I learned that I... That you I can just go. Can you can go. Guys, I knew that I tend to ramble, but I know that I learned that I tend to ramble a lot when I've uh, had a drink of my own creation that I've called the Jew Bond. It's vodka <laughs> with a little... I'm not going to go into it. I just tweeted the recipe. <laughs> you know, I think the Jew, oh, I think the Jew Bond... The photo. I think the Jew I Bond did. is what the three of us have experienced here tonight over this last hour. Oh, look at that. <laughs> That was that was like that. You need like the little upbeat music at the end there. That was like a good you know, TGI music. Yeah, I mean Wayne Wayne composed music. He made music. He went out of his way and it sounded great. It was wonderful. Oh, he really? It all the done. Yeah, he really That's did. Nice. He really did. But it, but it sounded like when crap. he played it. Yeah, it sounded horrible over the phone. So until <laughs> we can figure out a technology to showcase his artistry and talent, it's it's Wait, it would be useless. Even though it, even though it'll probably sound like a dog being uh, vivisected, should I just since we've got like two minutes left, <laughs> yeah. should I just should I just give it a try and play it over the yeah. phone? Yeah, should we just I'll like talk over everyone's it. ears? All right, this this is what it's supposed to be, but again, over the phone, it sounded horrible when we recorded it. One second. I'm ready to record. Wait, wait, wait! I'll do that again. Wait, 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 wait! The volume wasn't up. Here we go. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> there. Oh my god! I promise good. you, it actually sounds good when you're not listening to your podcast, and it doesn't sound like a jetliner kicking off. Oh, it sounds just as bad. It, a lot of it really sounds horrible. Like really good melodic but, feedback. I like that. But yeah, no. But I mean, it really does sound good if you actually are able to hear it. But also, uh, while your while your ears are recovering, you can go to sadmonsters.com and buy Frank Lesser's book, which is an it's really funny and really wonderful, and I uh, encourage everyone listening to go do that immediately. It's also <laughs> like kind of bizarrely um, sweet. It's oh, like thank it's you. something. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, yeah. you know, for for when someone thinks monsters and satire, you think um, you know, edge. And it's not that it doesn't have the edge, but um, there's just something kind of. The cover is very good. It's kind of like a very hairy, fanged somewhat sad person that's terrifying that you want to pet. And I think that really captures the feeling of the, uh, of the book. Well, and when you flip it over on the back, the monster's holding a little flower behind his back. Yeah. It's really right. sad. They all just want to be loved. I think I really, I'm deeply, I'm deeply messed up. And I wrote that book. And you should, you should read it. No, but thank you. I'm glad you guys, more, more, re- I mean, the interesting thing when you write a book, you kind of sort of hope and expect everybody you know will go out and buy it immediately. And a lot of them do, but then a lot of them don't read it for about three yeah, years. Yeah, I know, I know what that's like. And frankly, as long as they buy it, it's okay. But, exactly, uh, that's the more important part, let's be I, honest. I but no, like it, years uh, later, they'll be like, hey, that was actually, I read it, that's funny. They're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, people are first reading my first book now because I wrote the second one and it's coming out in two weeks. So... <laughs> So they're it's like they're reviewed like the first book sold more in the last week and more reviews popped up because they figured I don't know oh well now I I think people don't like to be especially with a trilogy they don't like to wait so now that there's two they'll read the first one oh I anyway let's make this more about me 
You know, because you've only written for Colbert for eight years, why would we be talking to you? <laughs> um, we are, though, I think, out of time. We, we no. learned things. Frank, Frank crushed the games. Wow, yes. Did everything yeah, that Nick Leslie, Nick, I hope you're listening, but he's not, did everything that <laughs> Nick Leslie couldn't do. Uh, and I think this podcast, but for the uh, for the uh, the beeping, which we blame Frank for, and he won't be here next week, was uh, <laughs> a step forward. Oh, good. I'm glad I could be there to help, guys. You guys are great. Thank you. Thank you. You're awesome, Thank- Frank. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Good night, everyone. We'll see you next week.